Well, we are again in Hebrews uh, chapter 10 this morning, and uh, we've been in this chapter for several weeks, but uh, today we're looking at verses 19 through 25. So find Hebrews 10 in your Bible, and uh, let's read this section together, verses 19 to 25. Stand with me. Let's read it. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we... uh, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for uh, just not only the theology that we have in Scripture, but the admonitions as well. And we know that uh, we are to walk the way you desire for us to walk as your people. And so, Lord, we pray uh, as we look at this uh, passage today that we would under, understand our responsibility before you. And, Lord, that we might uh, with joy uh comply and and follow you and be all the, that you want us to be. And so, Lord, we, we pray again this morning as we worship and as we uh, give, as we serve. Lord, all of this is for you. It's uh, We do, as, do it as unto the Lord. So uh, we pray that you would be pleased with it. And, Lord, uh, that you would be honored. And, Lord, that we would sing our praise uh, with a fervent uh, zeal that we would just express to you uh, that you alone are worthy and uh, that we acknowledge your glory, your majesty. And so, Lord, we do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. An interesting study that you can do quickly on the Internet is the history of the altar call in evangelical churches in America especially Baptist churches, and even more especially in the South. Most historians attribute this practice to Charles Finney in the 19th century. This was part of what was called his new measures, which were really methods of manipulating people to get more so-called decisions for Christ. This practice was employed by famous mass evangelists such as D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, and of course, Billy Graham. By the mid-20th century, altar calls had become a staple of evangelical and Baptist life in America. These altar calls were often connected with revivalism, hitting the sawdust trail, and the famous hymn, Just As I Am, became a way to create an atmosphere for sinners to feel compelled to come to Christ. 
Another interesting aspect of its history is the fact that the altar call was predominant in the holiness movement. In fact, the very name altar call likely came from the holiness and Pentecostal churches. Arminian theology has also contributed to this methodology. And in my opinion, it has led to a lot of people coming to a false assurance of salvation because they have responded in some emotional way to an altar call and they now are trusting in the fact that they walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. But of course, you know, genuine spiritual regeneration is much deeper than that and it always results in a changed life. Those who are trusting in the fact that they once responded to an altar call but show no evidence of new life in Christ are only fooling themselves. Now, all these are reasons why we don't do altar calls here. But having said all that, I need to move on and say that biblically we are always called upon to respond to God's Word. The New Testament not only contains long sections on sound doctrine, but it also includes fervent appeals to respond with genuine faith. And that's what we have in our text this morning. My friend, the- theologizing alone is never sufficient for a holistic understanding and vision of the Christian life. We always must act on the theology that we are taught. We must always respond to good theology with faith and practice. So the author of Hebrews makes an appeal to do exactly that. Hebrews 10:19-25 is one long sentence in the Greek that powerfully expresses the intensity of the author's appeal. The structure of the sentence is built on three imperatives, all beginning with the phrase, let us. The imperatives are, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. And these three imperatives are connected with the three central graces of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. The word therefore in verse 19 ties this appeal to everything that has been presented, really going all the way back to the beginning of the book, but at least as far back as chapter 4, verse 14. And the fact that he has just concluded the central theological section of the book It just makes sense that he would now make an urgent appeal to respond to its truth. And he addresses his readers here as brethren, which in this case is synonymous with fellow Jews. And as we've seen all along, there are some in his congregation that are born-again believers in Christ. There are some who have not yet made that commitment to Christ. But he identifies with them by using the pronoun we. This is a pastoral type of identification with his hearers. 
And really, when we think about it, there are only two possible responses to this appeal. His hearers can either respond with faith or they can fall back into apostasy. They can go back into their Judaism and reject the Christ and the new covenant. John MacArthur says Hebrews 10:19-25 is speaking to the person who does the former, the one who makes a positive response to the claims of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of response that the author of Hebrews is hoping for and really the kind of response that any preacher today would hope for. And I'm outlining this passage this way. A confidence of faith, verses 19 to 22. A confession of hope, verse 23. And a consideration of love, verses 24 and 25. Faith, hope, and love in that order. We begin with a confidence of faith. The invitation to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace has already been issued in this book. And we saw that all the way back in chapter 4, verse 16. Bruce says, Now a further assurance is given. The way by which this priest has entered into the presence of God is a way which now remains open for his people to follow him there. So in chapter 10, verse 19, it says, Since therefore, brethren... We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's the way in. How do we get there? By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. We can have absolute confidence to enter into the presence of God through the new and living way, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has inaugurated that way to God through the establishment of the new covenant. And what is the confidence based on? Well, verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's what he's been saying all along here in this book. He says, let us draw near now with a sincere heart of full assurance of faith. So there you go. Oh, but you know I went through that too fast. So I want to go back now and break this down a little bit. We really see three aspects of this confident faith. First, we see the facts. The facts. In verses 19 through 21, the author of Hebrews gives us the facts upon which we base our faith. This is the first necessary element of saving faith. Your faith has to be based on the truth. And in this case, there is concrete historical basis for having confidence to enter the holy place into the very presence of God. If a person tries to gain access to God on his own works, in his own religious practices or his own moral integrity, he will never succeed. The only way of access to God is through genuine saving faith in the finished work 
of Christ. Verse 19 says, it's all based on the blood of Jesus. That represents his entire work of atonement on the cross. And as he said earlier in chapter 4, verse 14, when we come on the basis of that, we can expect mercy and grace instead of judgment. In fact, we don't even receive justice. Because if we received justice, we would be condemned for our sin. No, we receive His mercy and grace. We don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get what is undeserved. Why? Is it because we're worthy? No. It is solely on the basis of Christ's atoning work on our behalf. It is all because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But going to verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Our Lord has opened up a new and living way, a way of access to God that was not there before. The old way could never bring us into the presence of God. There was no access to God under the old covenant system, but the new way can and does provide access to God. And because of what Christ did, we now can come boldly into His presence through saving faith in Christ. And notice how personal this is. He did this for us. We could never gain access to God on our our own, but He gained it for us. He died in our place. And by faith, God then imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. Notice the phrase, through the veil, that is, His flesh. When Jesus' flesh was torn, so was the veil that kept men from God. And we know that the veil in the temple was torn to symbolize that spiritual reality. But it was the veil of Christ's flesh that actually gained access to God. And that way is now open permanently to all who have placed their faith in Him. Christ inaugurated for us this way to God by His death on the cross. And notice this is a new and living way. The word for new there is an interesting word. It originally meant freshly slaughtered or freshly killed. So in this sense, we would say that Christ is the freshly slaughtered sacrifice that opened the way to God. And yet the amazing thing is that the one who was freshly slaughtered has become our living way to God. The word for living way literally means the one that gives life. His resurrection and ascension opened the door to everlasting life. His death conquered death. His death brought life, eternal life. And that new and living way is the only way for God. The word new can also mean one that was previously unavailable. This new and living way was not available under the old covenant. It was not until the inauguration of the new covenant that it became available. 
And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get his Jewish audience to understand. Really, it's the same message that Jesus himself gave in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He's the only way of access to God. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And notice that verse 21 says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. The author of Hebrews has spent several chapters now showing that Christ is the superior high priest. As our great high priest, he is continually interceding for us at the throne of grace. And the accuser of the brethren can have no access before God because our great intercessor is there defending us. And it's all on the basis of the facts that we now draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So we have to begin with the facts. But that leads us to the next point in the outline, which is the faith. You have to start with the facts and then move to faith. It's not enough just to give mental assent to the facts, the gospel, the truth. You must also exercise genuine faith. You've got to start with the facts. You have to understand the truth of the gospel. You have to mentally agree that it is true. But you've got to go beyond that. You've got to draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. The word for sincere there means genuine without any superficiality, hypocrisy, or ulterior motive. MacArthur says coming to God with full assurance requires commitment that is genuine. The word for full assurance can be translated with conviction or with certainty. This genuine, sincere faith is necessary in order to have eternal life. Now, this sincere faith has been illustrated a lot of different ways. Uh, Perhaps one of the most famous ways is the story of the tightrope walker. Uh, Years ago, there was a a famous tightrope walker, and he impressed people with his feats. And uh, one time, he was uh, walking on a tightrope between two skyscrapers in New York City, and uh, he walked across and back. And then there was this large audience, and he came over, and he asked the question, how many of you believe I can walk across this tightrope with someone on my back? And they all raised their hand. Everybody believed that. But then he asked for a volunteer. (laughs) Needless to say, no one was willing to volunteer. You see, they believed it mentally. They gave assent to it, but they didn't commit themselves to it. There's a big difference. That illustrates that true saving faith is not the same as merely professing faith in Christ. There's a difference. 
It illustrates the truth that professing Christ without commitment to Christ is not really saving faith. But another powerful illustration of this comes originally from the mission fields. As a missionary translator in the New Hebrides, a man named John Patton was frustrated in his work for a long time because the people there on those islands had no word for faith. And as you can imagine, it's difficult to communicate the truth of the gospel without a word for faith. Well, this frustration continued for several several years until one day a man who was working for him came into the house and plopped down in a big chair. And when the missionary saw that, he immediately had a thought. And he asked him, what would be the word for what he just did? And the word he gave communicated the idea of fully trusting his full weight on that chair. And from that time on, the missionaries in the New Hebrides had their word for saving faith. And that's the word that he used then for faith in his translation of the New Testament. John MacArthur explains why this was the perfect word for true saving faith. He said, without hesitation or reservation, the man had totally committed his body to the chair. He had felt his need for rest. He was convicted that the chair was uh, able to provide for rest. He committed himself to the chair for rest. And a believer must, in the same way, totally commit his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then is faith saving faith. Now we're going to spend a whole lot of time on genuine saving faith because the entire 11th chapter is devoted to the subject of faith. But there must be a response to the truth of the gospel with genuine saving faith. And this response really is the exact opposite of what he warned about earlier in chapter 3, verse 12, where he said, Take care, brethren, lest there be, uh, should be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Don't respond that way in an unbelieving way, but instead respond with saving faith. So we have the facts, we have the faith. But thirdly, there's a third thing we have to have, and that is the forgiveness. Look at the last part of verse 22. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's writing this from the perspective of those who do, in fact, respond with genuine saving faith. What do they experience? A spiritual cleansing and complete washing. And the concepts here are taken from the ceremonies of the Old Covenant system, but they are spiritually applied to New Covenant believers. The priests, of course, were continually washing themselves and the sacred vessels in the basins of clean water. And the blood was continually being sprinkled as a sign of cleansing. And yet these things were only external, so they had no power to truly cleanse the inner man. Only the gospel can do that. 
And one of the clearest verses on the power of the gospel is Titus 3, 5, which says he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It is that washing of regeneration that Hebrews 10.22 is referring to. That regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which takes place at the moment of salvation, can cleanse our conscience and can completely wash away our sin. The phrase... And our bodies washed with pure water has nothing to do with water baptism. It has to do with the spiritual cleansing that comes from regeneration. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the church becoming sanctified by God, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. The Word of the Gospel cleanses the heart and makes believers brand new on the inside. And you may remember what we saw in chapter 9. There it mentioned that the water that was used for cleansing of impurity was prepared with the ashes of a red heifer. And in chapter 9, verse 13 and following, the rhetorical question was asked, For if the ashes of a red heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh under the old covenant, How much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, only the new covenant could cleanse the inner man. And that's what he's saying. The prophets had declared that the new covenant would result in the cleansing of the soul, the cleansing of the inner man. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, it says of the new covenant, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What do we have in the new covenant. What does this mean now for new covenant believers? It means we have a clean heart. We no longer need to have fear as we approach God. As one who has an evil conscience. But we can now approach Him with boldness and confidence knowing that our hearts have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So we have confidence of faith as part of how we are to respond to Christ. But secondly, we also need a confession of hope. A confession of hope. Look with me at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now this is in the Greek present tense, which means it is to be something continual, And it is in the imperative, which means it is something that we're commanded to do. And there are two critical aspects of understanding this rightly. First of all, we have to understand that biblically, hope is never wishful thinking or optimism. 
on the part of the believer. It is absolute certainty. The New Testament does not use the word hope the same way that we use that word today. Our hope, biblically, is something that is not yet realized, but that does not mean it is uncertain in any way. It is absolutely certain. Secondly, we have to understand that a genuine believer will be hopeful. The word for hope and the word for faith come from the same root word. And as John MacArthur points out, a person who genuinely trusts cannot help being hopeful. In fact, a hopeless believer is a contradiction in terms. A person who is genuinely hopeful will indeed hold fast. So what this is describing here is the human side of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's a Reformation doctrine. It is thoroughly biblical. It is the teaching of Scripture that those who are truly born again spiritually will, in fact, persevere unto the end. And the teaching of Scripture is that anyone who falls away from the faith was never truly born again to begin with. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Or as 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not all of us. That's pretty clear. Those who are truly born again will hold on firm to the end. But that is not why we are eternally secure. We are eternally secure because God is holding us. It is, that's the divine side of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So the imperative to hold fast, the confession of our hope without wavering, is not based on the idea that we can somehow keep ourselves saved. It's based on the fact that he who promised is faithful. God is the one who saved us in the first place. He's the one who keeps us saved. And that's where our eternal security really lies. It's not based on some idea that we can have the ability to hold on. That's not our eternal security. But instead, we can hold fast to our profession because we know He is holding us and that He will never let go. So what is the perseverance of the saints? It is really the evidence that we're truly born again. From the human side, it shows that we have been genuinely, spiritually regenerated. And as one commentator wrote, it is a paradox, just like the doctrine of election. God sovereignly chooses those who are saved, but he will not save anyone who does not believe. And in the same way, God keeps us secure in his Son, but our own wills, expressed in holding on and perseverance, are also involved. So both the human side and the divine side are true. I mean, even the most fervent Calvinist recognizes that God's sovereignty sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father 
who sent me draws him. That's John 6.44. But he also said, if you abide in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. That's John 8.31. Both sides are true. And of course, in the parable of the sower, we see four different kinds of responses to the gospel. But true believers are pictured in Luke 8.15 as those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. These are the true believers. A a genuine believer will always hold on to hope. Genuine faith cannot fail. However, it can waver. And that's why we have the imperative here to hold fast the confession of our hope without Wavering. It's why we're being reminded that he who promised is faithful. From the human side, our command from the Lord is to be like a bulldog in hanging on to that eternal hope and not letting it go even for a moment. We're to have an unflinching grasp and grip on that future hope. Why? Because that's what will carry us through adversity and suffering. It is a huge part of our enduring faith in God. What is, what's a major problem in the contemporary American church today? It is the fact that too many professing Christians sway back and forth with the winds of falsehood, persecution, doubt, and unbelief that blow against them. And what the author of Hebrews is endeavoring to do is to make us unwavering pillars of faith that we would not bend no matter what winds may blow. And you know, it's interesting that the word for without wavering in the New American Standard literally means unbending. It communicates the concept of stability or even Immutability. It can be used for a lasting friendship, for example, that stands up through thick and thin. Philo even uses this word to describe the immutability of God. In other words, our holding on to hope should be unchanging. It is to be lasting and permanent. The word for hold fast is a word that means hold to, keep, Retain, occupy, possess. Guthrie says in extra-biblical sources, students could be said to retain a body of teaching, which calls to mind early Christian exhortations to hold on to the traditions of the faith. Hold on to sound doctrine. In the Greek word, the Greek is the word kateko. It speaks of keeping a tight grip on sound doctrine and not letting it be lost in any way. In fact, the word catechism comes from that word. So we have a confidence of faith. We have a confession of hope. But thirdly, we need a consideration of love. Consideration of love. Look with me at verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, 
drawing near. The imperative here is that we make sure we give consideration to the responsibility of stimulating believers toward love and good deeds. The main verb is consider. And again, this is in the present tense. Keep on considering, it says. What does this mean? It means you have to give it some thought. It means you have to come up with a plan. It means you have to develop a strategy for enhancing the fellowship of the church. And listen, this verse deals with the issue of how to connect. Listen, don't tell me that you're having a hard time connecting with other people in the church. This verse tells us that each of us must come up with a plan for doing that. It is our responsibility as Christians to make sure we are constantly considering how to stimulate other Christians to love and good deeds. Invite someone over to your house. Get involved in a ministry. Do something to help disciple someone. This is an ongoing divine responsibility for every Christian. It is an assignment from God. And I like what Jay Adams says at this point. He says, this week, make a list of at least 30 ways that you can stimulate other Christians to love and good deeds. I like that. Sit down and make a list. And this, by the way, would greatly help most of us because we tend to get so consumed with ourselves, we would be greatly benefited in changing our focus to others instead of ourselves. By the way, that deals with a whole lot of problems, psychological problems and all kinds of hang-up problems if we would just do that. And, you know, anytime I hear someone say they're just not connecting, really it says more about their own spiritual immaturity than anything else. It tells us that there are those who are not heeding this command from God. We're not continually considering how to stimulate others toward love and good deeds. By the way, the word for stimulate there can be translated provoke, stir up, or arouse. It can mean to sharpen. This is a very strong word. It is only used one other place in the New Testament, and there it's used in a very different way. In Acts 15.39, it means sharp contention. And we're told there that Paul and Barnabas disagreed about whether they should take John Mark with them on their next missionary journey. And it says, there arose a sharp disagreement. There's your word. That they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So it is used there in a negative sense, but here in Hebrews, it's used as a positive admonition. And the idea of provocation is more often used in a negative way, but here it's the exact opposite. 
we are to provoke each other in the sense of stimulating one another to love the brethren and to be involved in good deeds. And this is connected with something else. Look at verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is all in the context of the regular assembling together of the believers. This has to do with when the church gathers together. We have two times every week that we gather corporately to worship, Sunday morning, Sunday night. Now, we have a lot of other things through the week. All that's optional, but these are the times that everyone is to be here. And listen, one of the main reasons why you need to be faithful to assemble with the church regularly when it gathers is so that you can encourage other believers. It's not about what you get out of it. It's not about whether you like the song the choir sang. It's not about whether you like the preacher's tie. Isn't this a nice tie? It's not about whether you like the topic of the sermon. Some of you are saying, I don't like the topic of the sermon. It's not about what you're going to get. It's what you can give and how you can serve and how you can encourage others and how you can build others up in the faith. By the way, that's why you ought to want to come back on Sunday night. Because it's a lot easier to do that on Sunday night than it is on Sunday morning. But that's what this is talking about. The point is, every time the church gathers corporately, we should be there so we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. And notice that this verse really refutes the false idea that church is optional for believers. Apparently... There were some in that day who were in the habit of not meeting with the other believers when they gathered. And perhaps they bought into the lie that, you know, we can worship God anywhere at any time, which, by the way, is true, but that begs the point. That's not the issue here. Some people have the idea, we don't need to gather with the church. And, you know, we hear that today. Well, I can worship God down you know, by the lake or by the river, just as well as I can in church. And that's, we know why you're saying that, because you want to go fishing. But perhaps there were some who uh, thought they could just, you know, get by without gathering with the other believers. Maybe they could just worship uh, there, you know, in their own family, or they didn't need the rest of the Christian community. But folks, listen, any kind of notion like this, is really saying, we think we know better than God. Because God's Word says, we are to be faithful to gather together with the other believers. And notice it says, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. You know, there are prophecy gurus out there. Some some people really get into prophecy, and that's wonderful. I love prophecy as well. And and there are many who are convinced 
that, you know, the, the Lord's coming, it's drawing near, it's getting close. Listen, if you believe that, you ought to be the most faithful church attender there has ever been because the Word of God says we're to do that, we're to be faith, faithful even more as we see that day drawing near. Now, there are some commentators that think this has to do with the imminent destruction of the temple that brought about the end of the sacrifices, but really, if you study it, that has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you think His coming is near, then you ought to be even more faithful than ever before. But what about you this morning? Where do you stand? Do you have that assurance of faith? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? You've settled that. You can approach the throne of God with grace. You can... Uh, Know that you have confidence to come into His presence because of the blood of Christ? Are you hanging on to that eternal faith? Are you persevering in the Lord? And are you making sure you have a plan to stimulate other believers toward love and good works? Are we doing what God's Word is admonishing us to do here. I pray that we are. If not, would you consider, as with every time God's Word is proclaimed, He expects us to respond to it. And so we need to respond to His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that we would respond, but that we would respond with saving faith, that we would respond with a genuine hope and uh, genuine desire to uh, do your will and to uh, follow this admonition in every aspect. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to uh, be the people you've called us to be. And Lord, we thank you for these words, uh, these commands, these imperatives, that we would obey you in doing these things. And so, Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that's never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, they will come to that saving uh, faith in, in Christ. I pray that believers would be established and would be strong in you. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to your church, that we would uh, understand the purpose that you have for it, and Lord, that we would uh, be committed to these things. Help us to respond the way you want us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.